0: Namah Tat Savaga Tura Tura Samma Samputasa. Namah Tat Savaga Tura Tura Samma Samputasa. Namah Namasami. So, one of the, um, principles of the, um, the Buddha's teaching is the, of the teachings of conditionality. <clears throat> so, things don't happen spontaneously, they happen because of conditions. So, because this arises, that results. If this doesn't arise, then that doesn't result. And on one hand, it seems, well, it seems pretty straightforward, but there's lots of views and philosophies that don't have that as a kind of basis. And the, the result of that being a basis is that it means that we can look at, see what has arisen and get a feeling of the conditions that have given rise to that and learn how to make different choices in the way we pay attention so that we don't create the kind of uh, pretzels and stress and confusion and... Suffering that is standard fare. So one of the like the 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 quintessential ways in which this whole cycle is spoken about is known as the cycle of dependent arising, and this cycle, which has twelve links in it, has a lot of complexity in it, and on a kind of a first go, it's not at all intuitive how these links connect to each other because it starts with ignorance and it says that with ignorance and a condition ignorance creates mental formations and mental formations and ignorance are kind of like uh, like a they rely on each other you can't have ignorance without mental formations and mental formations is dependent on ignorance so these two things arise dependent on each other with these two things as a kind of basis, that conditions our consciousness. And with our consciousness conditioned by ignorance and mental formations, that creates like a color lens through which we experience contact. Contact is our sight and our hearing and our taste and our skin and our thoughts and our... I missed one? I'm sure I did. Smell. Yeah. And so all of this gives rise to the way in which we are experiencing contact now. in normal perception, what happens is, is, is that it takes organ, object, and consciousness coming together in order to result in a contact, a feeling of pleasant or a feeling of unpleasant or a feeling of neutral. So, I was curious to me, because I've been here for a couple of years now, I've never heard anybody playing guitar. So here's a Sunday night, we're having meditation, and the door's open, because the weather's warm and there's playing guitar. And so there was just this thread of irritation, of why is it that tonight, of all nights, in the whole time, they're playing guitar. So there was the sound, and then there was the perception of unpleasant feeling, okay? And there's a little bit of tension. Not a lot of tension, just a little bit of tension. I don't like it. I shouldn't be here. What about the people who are meditating? They're going to be disturbed. Okay. So when there's a contact, and then there's a feeling connected to it. But I have very much been enjoying the warm weather. So the warmth, there's also contact. And the contact with the warmth for me is a sense of relaxation and pleasant and easefulness with that. Now, there's a lot of contact that's neutral. That's the kind of sense of feeling your cloth against the skin, or feeling your pressure on the cushion, or feeling the the breeze against your eyes. Mostly, that contact doesn't have something particularly positive or particularly negative. It's neutral. And usually what happens with neutral contact is, is that we're not present for it. We space out. We zone out. We're not. We check out. It's like it's not important enough for me, so I'm out of here. Okay? But the thing about waking up to neutral contact is is that so much of life is neutral contact. Is, is that it tends to be a way in which the drama of really high or the horrible, terrible, extremely desperate, very low gets equalized because enormous amount of experience in life is neutral. And as I've learned how to wake up to neutral, I notice a a brightening and a livening, uh, a a fullness of presence with just life. You know, the contact of drinking a glass or experience of taking a shower, how nice it is to be able to rest on a cushion. Where you know, I go to the rocks and rest in the rocks and I feel like the rocks just embrace me. So there's a sense of such a deep feeling of comfort just to rest on the rocks. You know. The absence of the sound of of street noises in the city. You know, it's very peaceful for me. So when I can locate myself in in and be present for neutral, you know, the colors of the green or the smell of the earth, or the movement of the creatures. There's a a, a richening, a deepening of the ability to wake up to what's happening. And life takes on a kind of a three-dimensional color tone, rather than a two-dimensional black and white tone. So this whole field of contact gives rise to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And these three things, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, tend to be the kind of kingpin around which all of the chaos of our life can be organized. Because when things are pleasant, even if it's an innocent pleasure, there's a kind of a thread of I want it to stay. Or a fear of what happens if it goes, you know. And so the pleasant experiences that we have in our life tend to be a place around which there's a gathering of wanting of desiring and the things which are unpleasant you know the the sound that i didn't want to hear tonight you know the guitar there's a sense of pushing it away or aversion or if only or you know i don't want to feel this or i don't want this to be here right now and then these neutral feelings are the ones that we tend to kind of avoid or just not show up for And so these three things, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, tends to be the way in which the rest of our life gets organized into grabbing, pushing, or avoiding. And this grabbing, pushing, and avoiding then moves into a stronger cycle of that, which is known as upadana, or craving. And that craving then gives rise to a kind of absorbing into wanting to do something about it. So if we have something that's really lovely, we want it. And then the thoughts start about how do I get it or how do I secure it or how do I keep it? Or if we don't want it, you know, then it's like, well, should I go over and tell the neighbors on Sunday night that they shouldn't play the music? You know, the thoughts will start moving about a a strategy on how to avoid having that experience again, you know. And then with the neutral feelings, the way that happens is there's just an inability of just being present for it. So just checking out, not noticing that it's happening. Okay. So when one has moved into this kind of a upadana, then the next response on the cycle is known as birth. Now this is not giving birth to a human being, this is giving birth to a mind object so it's like you know there's an ice cream cone and we're in the ice cream parlor there's the smell of coffee and we've bought the coffee there's this feeling of the of the music and we've already thought I'm going to go over and I'm going to talk to them and ask if it's okay if they don't play on Sunday night You know there's a, there's a buying in and absorbing into the thought patterns that follow on from the desire and from the aversion and that gives rise to something which is solidified into an object of mind, an action that one is committed to doing. And anytime something arises in this world when there's birth, then the natural thing that follows is is that there's old age and sickness and death and sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So with birth comes this whole other thing. Okay? So we are in a culture that absolutely relishes birth. This is a birth obsessed culture. We like everything that's little and lovely and tiny and brand new and we hate everything that's old and sick and dying and fading and and, and, and not brand new. This is a birth obsessed culture. but every time that there's birth, then it is <clears throat> there is going to be an aging process. And even if you've born into having a cup of coffee, There's a time where that cup of coffee just absolutely doesn't satisfy in the way the desiring mind was hoping it would. And that is the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair connected to the coffee. It's not huge, but it's proportional to what we've been born into. So when we understand the cycle of how the suffering is created... And it gives us a golden key. And that golden key is is that we can undo suffering. When we understand the causes that give rise to the links, then we have places where we can cut the chain. And one of the places that we can cut the chain is where contact gives rise to desire. So, just a sound. Music. And there's a sense. I don't like it. Now, if I am present with that feeling, I don't like it. I can just be present with that. I don't like it. And the I don't like it can become an object of meditation that I can know in awareness and know the sense of tension around it and tightness around it. It doesn't give rise to the whole Papancha or proliferation festival what do I need to do in order to prevent it from arising again it just stops right there likewise if there's something really attractive so what's really attractive Mm, nature food, sensuality friends a good job what's really attractive, for each of us it might look different But the idea of something really attractive comes, and when one is entirely present with that, right there, the cycle of desiring and hankering after it and longing for it stops. Now, it doesn't mean that we sit like a potato and make no action. But what it means is that the action is not motivated from desire, or fear, or aversion, or ignorance motivated by compassion and wisdom. So the cycle of dependent origination is one of the key components of the Buddha's teachings. And even though these 12 links are complicated, it is really incredibly helpful to see the way these things connect with each other so that we can begin to get a sense of where we can place our attention and the choices that we make in order to move towards freedom or in order to exacerbate suffering. Now, patichu samuppado, a dependent origination, arises as a personal experience. It arises in the immediacy of our life. It arises in every moment. It also arises from lifetime to lifetime. So that the body that we have is the result of previous conditions. okay? And the previous conditions were not things that arose in this lifetime. They had arose before we were born. So in order to have a body, there needed to be sperm and ovum from mother and father. And that sperm and ovum then connected with consciousness. And that consciousness, according to classical teachings, came from a mind continuum from before, Right, So the mind continuum and the ovum and the sperm joined together and that gave rise to the conditions necessary for uh, a fetus to develop and then for a body to be born. All of those conditions had to be present. Now in a contemporary context, because people don't have a belief system in past lives and future lives and mind continuums and all the rest of that, it's often the case that this whole segment of the teaching is just left not talked about. Because I come from a tradition where people are not asked to take on belief systems that are not familiar to them. And the tradition is based on everything that you need to know is present in the here and now, and you can experience it and know for yourself. Okay? But in terms of the scriptures, there's ways in which that piece of that part of the cycle gives rise to a framework which helps other things come into clarity. If you have that as a, as a framework, then there's other things that make sense that don't make sense or don't have the same kind of easeful waking sense. So I'm not offering this as a requirement if you believe it. I never speak in a way where I ask anybody to take on what I'm saying. I'm just talking about this whole cycle of dependent origination has different applications, and one of them is the immediacy of what's happening right now, and the other is... <coughs> over a period of lifetimes and how that works. One of them has to do with the way the society functions. So in the same way that we have a choice in the way that we operate and the results that come from that, the society functions in the same way. So when you have a government that is just and takes care of its people... And has good laws, and has good international policies, and is not a kind of—I'm not sure what the right word is—cowboy on the on the on the um, state scene. Then the likelihood is is that you are going to be in a situation where you won't be getting the country will not be getting into wars unnecessarily. If you don't have good laws if you don't take good care of your people, if you are a cowboy that's interested in going out there and either um, fighting other people's battles or getting into other people's business, then that will be the condition through which uh, the people in this country will get into wars that are not in their own best interest or necessarily in the best interest of other people. When people are engaged in war, there is naturally going to be an awful lot of consequences and the consequences are you've got death you've got injury, you've got mental illness you've got readjustment problems you've got huge consequences that come from being in war okay so there's the dependent co-arising that happens with war there's the dependent co-arising that happens with poverty there's the dependent co-arising that happens around health care There's all kinds of ways where the principle of dependent arising applies to our society. It's not just how we individually make choices, but it's how collectively, as a nation, we make choices, and the consequences as a nation that we feel as a result. Now, today, or this weekend, is Memorial Day weekend, and I have had a lifetime kind of absolute antipathy towards the military because the only thing that i've associated the military with is the military industrial complex and there's nothing about that which i feel my heart opening towards nothing you know it's all about stuff that i don't believe in and yet here i am living in colorado springs where there's the air force academy and the paterson air force base and fort carson and norad and all this military stuff And you see people, I go up to Manitou Springs, and I go on alms round there, and there's an awful lot of people there who are just absolutely blasted. Now, whether there are vets, I don't know. I don't know their personal stories. But there are a lot of people who are absolutely blasted, and I know a few vets who are absolutely messed up. And they are well indoctrinated into the military and they do their service and they come back and there's nothing that holds and supports and helps integrate the process of what they've been through, the experience that they've had. They've been in something that's incredibly tight-knit and they feel even if they don't understand the war that they're in, they feel that they're doing something for the good of the country. And they come back And there's no sense of togetherness, and there's no sense of cohesiveness, and there's no sense of meaning, and they can't make sense out of what they've been through, and nobody understands what they've been through, and it's just really fragmented. And so we have a kind of a global consequence of the wars that we've been in, and not yet sufficient capacity to hold it. So you have the fallout landing on the individual people who are coming out of the armed forces, their families and their neighbors. You know, they're self-medicating with alcohol and with drugs. They can't handle the emotional liability that they're going through. So there's violence, there's domestic violence and sexual abuse. And the story goes on and on and on and on and on. So when a country makes decisions that support war and people are in 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 um, in the military then you have a result and the result is something that the whole society will have to feel the consequences of. Mm. Now, I don't have the ability to change the laws or change the people's decision-making processes so that we're not getting into war. But I do have the ability to understand that these things co together, that when these kind of decisions-making have happen, this is the result. And the result then is left to the all of the society to hold the consequences. And then I feel, rather than the military-industrial complex as a nightmare, I feel the suffering of the people and what they've been through in some sense of, you know, is there a little something that I can do to help? You know, what could I do here to help? You know, how can I help these people? What would that look like? I don't know yet, but this is a question that I've been sitting with, you know. Oh yeah. Hmm. So there's two ways in which we can have an intuition about this whole cycle of dependent origination, and one of them is to really go into this whole process and study the links and understand the choices that we have at each part and understand where we give up our choice or where we no longer have choice. So anybody who's had a baby knows that at a certain point after you're pregnant, there's a process that's happening. You know, the baby is coming, you know, and, and when the baby is about to be born, there's very little you can do to stop that. There's like not much that's happening to stop a baby who's ready to be born. It's coming, right? So once the baby is conceived, then there's a whole process of what happens in terms of the baby being born. And the same is true with our ideas, our thoughts, and our actions. At a certain point, it's happening. It's like a snowball has gained enough momentum. It's over the side of the mountain, and it's rolling. And so then we can be good parents of the snowball or not-so-good parents of the (laughs) snowball. We can pick up the pieces or not pick up the pieces, but once the snowball has gotten a certain momentum, it's rolling. Right? So we can begin to get a sense of, well, where are the choice points do we have in our life? At what point we've got choice, at what point we no longer have choice. It's rolling, it's off the mountain, and it's gone. And learn how to make choices so that our lives are moving in the direction that are congruent with our values. You know, towards more sense of ease and less suffering, more, more sense of peace and less harm for ourselves and for our family and for the people around us, for the people that we care about. But the other way of understanding all of this, which is actually incredibly complicated, I'm not saying it that it's trivial, even though I can talk about it in a few minutes, it's a very complicated material, is to understand it in terms of the way that we feel connected to each other. So you can get to a similar understanding through two avenues. One is through an in-depth analysis of dependent arising. And the other is through feeling our connectedness with each other. Through getting a sense of what it feels like to be in the presence of someone else who's suffering. And how your system can just quiver wanting to find a way to respond. Now, that's not a kind of desire. It's a kind of empathy. Where may I say it another way, the skillful way of quivering with another person's suffering is through empathy rather than grasping. So that it's not that we are grasping onto an idea of wanting to save or to fix or to help or to hold, but just this kind of heartfelt response of... You know, is there is there a way that we can give is there a kindness is there some action of being present with this that helps release the suffering you know and certainly any of us have gone through experiences where we have seen just showing up makes a huge difference and also we will have experiences where we know that there's nothing obvious that changes in just showing up that whatever's going on is complicated or locked in or deep rooted in our presence. We cannot notice any discernible shift that happens when we show up. Hmm. So, the whole cycle, the cycle of dependent origination is the cycle of suffering and the cycle of the ending of suffering. And the two avenues that are the most direct paths to that is through wisdom and through compassion. Through clarity of seeing the actual links that give rise to that. And this incredible heartfelt sense of can the suffering end? What do we need to do to let it end? To create the space, to create the conditions, to create... The feel, the friendship, the trust. So I think I'll leave this reflection here tonight for everybody. And maybe if you'd like to stand up or stretch, you're welcome to, and then we can gather around and um, have a discussion. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.